Maybe you know the story about a boy who was walking along a beach and there were thousands of starfish that were stranded. The tide had gone out and the boy was there taking one at a time and throwing them back out into the water. And an old man who'd seen a lot of life came walking along the beach and said to the boy, it's not going to help. You can't save all of them. You're not going to make a difference. And the boy's response was, as he picked up another one, it'll make a difference for this one as he threw it into the ocean. It's a good story. And it reminds us that an individual life is worth investing in. Even if you feel like you can't make a difference in the world, changing one life matters. People matter. But if you think about it, it's also a little depressing. Helping one life here and there in what often appears to be a losing battle. So let's broaden the picture. Instead of just one boy, let's picture thousands upon thousands of people on that beach. Wait, let's picture two billion people on that beach. I'll tell you what I think would happen. We would save the starfish kingdom. Today, there are two billion men, women, and children who claim to be Christians in the world. Two Christians for every seven people living on planet Earth now. Don't you think with that percentage, we could be thinking more? That's not to say individual lives aren't important, but are we settling? Are we giving up? Have we settled for less than what God's mission on Earth is? Did God have something bigger in mind? And with that many people scattered around this world who supposedly are committed to Jesus, why isn't that change happening? Now, I'm sure a lot of you would have your opinion, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, but as I was considering that, I thought of several things. The first is just simple reality that even though Jesus has come, even though he pronounced that in some way his kingdom had come with him and we are citizens of his kingdom, even though that's true, we also are living out that kingdom in another reality and that's still the old age. You remember the diagram that we've looked at several times? There it is. Sometimes I just got to pull out the magic. The Hebrew thinking was that the Messiah would come the old age with sin and death and injustice would disappear forever, and the Messiah would bring about the new age. But what the prophets saw and what Jesus proclaimed was a different picture of that. And he did come, but not to end the current age. There was yet another coming. Jesus promised, then I'm going to come as king. And when that happens, the old age will be finally done away with. Then finally sin death and all of the injustice in the world will be done away with. We long for that. And historically, traditionally, churches, at least in these last couple centuries, and definitely in America, have focused on that aspect of God's kingdom almost exclusively, the future reality. But we're very much aware of the broken world, the old age in which we live. And there's a practical reality that no matter how much we work to bring the kingdom of God, 
to bring the love and the rain and the blessing of God, what Luke 4 speaks about, that era of the favor of God coming to this world. No matter how much we try, the work will never be done. And in fact, we'll face hostility by the systems As Paul says, it's not against people. It's about spiritual forces of darkness. We're going to face resistance. Jesus, even as he painted this picture of what the kingdom would be, spoke about the reality of tribulation and hardship. He said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. That's the Sermon on the Mount that expresses the glory of life in the kingdom of God. And in this reality, in this gap period, we are in the kingdom, but we're on mission for the kingdom of God in the kingdom of this world. And because of that, our job will never be done. And it will always be difficult. Jesus said right up until the very end, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be sin. There will be darkness. And so in some sense, we see that and we give into it. We give in to it. Instead of thinking that there's something we can do about it, our churches become bomb shelters against the darkness of the world. And we're huddled together just waiting for the real kingdom to come. We become spiritual survivalists in the world because it's hard. Sometimes it feels futile trying to throw one starfish at a time into the sea. And so we close ourselves in and wait for the kingdom to finally come. We forget that the kingdom is now at the same time. I think another reason why that change isn't happening with all the people who claim to be followers of Jesus in the world, and that's that Christians have come to see this world as something to escape. And the mission of the church is trying to get as many people to escape with us when Jesus comes. I've alluded several times to the new uh, movie, uh, Left Behind, which is a reboot of the Tim LaHaye series of books, very popular set of books, and I'm not here to discuss today my particular view of the future. That's certainly one interpretation of it, but what I will say is that that mentality, that rapture religion keeps us so focused on escaping this dark world that we miss altogether Jesus' mission for this world now. And we've turned the mission of the church into just trying to get as many people to get to heaven with us when Jesus comes. Now, that's a part of it, but that's not all of it. We're missing out on a huge piece of Jesus' mission. And consequently, we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. The third thing that comes to my mind is that we're not one church. We're two billion Christians, but we're at war with each other. Here we are in this city alone, and today, this very hour, Christians all over the city are worshiping and are radically uncomfortable with the thought of getting together with each other because of our various traditions and some of our theological distinctions, we suspect each other. Now, I don't mean to suggest that every person that labels themselves as a Christian is the real deal, but don't you think there's a whole lot more that are than those of us right now in this room? 
what would happen if we stopped thinking about just doing our stuff for this city? I've seen big churches come and go in Worcester, and they're territorial. They don't work with others. Consequently, they're only doing so much. Imagine what we could do if we could somehow pull together. I don't have magic for that. I don't even have enough influence to pull that off. But what if we just started thinking and acting differently as this church? What if we started thinking bigger than our theology and tradition, trying to preserve truth rather than bringing the one who is the truth to the world around us? What if we stopped debating so strongly our differences in how we interpret the Word and actually bring the Word made flesh to the world around us together? What if we did that? I'm not saying distinctions aren't important. I'm not saying as a church we don't need to know what we believe, not just about the major doctrines, but about the secondary doctrines and practice those. But I'm saying we're wrong if we allow those things to isolate us from the body of Christ. I got news for you. Jesus is building His church in Worcester, and it's not all happening here. We want to be part of that. What would happen if two billion Christians got their act together? I'll tell you what. Kingdom come, baby. Fourth, we've lost sight of our full mission. We have forgotten that Jesus called us not just to preach about his death, but to imitate his life. We've lost focus on what our mission fully is. Our mission was Jesus' mission. And when Jesus started his ministry on earth, these were the words that he spoke. Now, if you've had your thumb in Luke 4, today I'm going to start at verse 14, and I'm going to move forward to verse 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And then Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut off for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow 
in Seraphath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard Jesus say this. They got up and drove him out of town. (laughs) They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. A casual reader would say, why would that so infuriate this hometown? I mean, this is their homeboy. They didn't just say, sit down, son, you're still a little too young. We shouldn't have let you open your mouth quite yet. Why did they kick him out of the synagogue? Worse than that, let's be clear, they were going to kill Jesus as a heretic. Why is it? First of all, Jesus speaking of the fulfillment of a passage that they knew was about the coming of the Messiah. This is fulfilled today in your midst. He's claiming to them, I'm the anointed one. I'm the one called by God that Isaiah prophesied about that would come to bring good news, to bring about the the kingdom, the era of God's favor. I am he. But you know what really got them mad? Was when Jesus talked about how Elijah and Elisha when Israel was living in disobedience, blessed Gentiles. See, the widow Zarephath was a Gentile. Naaman was a Gentile. In fact, he was part of the conquering country that had taken slaves from Israel captive. That's how the Israelite girl was in his household in the first place to tell him about the prophet. It was the notion that when the Messiah came, The Gentiles were included. And they were angry enough about it that they were willing to kill Jesus because they saw that as heresy, both what he claimed to be and what he believed the kingdom would be about. That's amazing. Even the right religion, which Judaism was in the time of Jesus, even the right religion can become so closed off to the truth that when it shows up, They actually call it evil and call it heresy. And what that reminds us is sometimes recovering what the real mission of the church is is a courageous thing to do even with other churches. Think about that. What would happen if a church actually looked like Jesus? If a church did more than think the message was just about Jesus' death, but realize that according to Jesus' mission, it was also about imitating his life. You'll see two things that I've listed there. The first is about our identity. If we want to be a church that looks like Jesus, we would see the church as the body of Jesus participating in the mission of God. The church is not an organization. It's not a building. We prove that every week here, don't we? It's not a building. The church is the ecclesia, the called out people of God. Remember, I've quoted it already again today, Matthew 16, when Jesus talked about the church that he was going to build, which wasn't called the Journey Community Church. (laughs) All people who claim Jesus as their Lord and Master and Savior everywhere in the world. And hopefully that's us here too. We want Jesus to be building his church here. But what he is saying very clearly is that that church I'm going to build, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against. 
That's not a bomb shelter. It's not the gates of hell banging on our refuge. It's the church as a mobilized people of God in the name of their king taking back the territory that the devil has taken. The very first thing Jesus ever said about the church was that it would have kingdom authority and that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. We need to recapture our identity as the people of Christ participating in the mission of God on planet earth. And then secondly, when we look at our mission, we need to recognize that our mission is to continue and extend the mission of Jesus. Our mission is to continue and extend the mission of Jesus. I want to point to two verses that are probably familiar to a lot of you. The first is John 20, 21. Say this with me, Jesus' words, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And now John 14, verse 12. Say this with me. Anyone who believes in me will do the works I have done and even greater works. These are very interesting passages. When we think about the mission of the church, we tend to focus exclusively on Jesus' parting words that are recorded at the end of Matthew and the beginning of the book of Acts. The Great Commission, as we call it. But those were just summations of everything he'd been teaching them. And when did he start teaching it? Luke chapter 4. Jesus was not only telling them what their mission was, but he was showing it. And he was saying, in the same way the Father sent me, in the same way I have ministered and brought about the kingdom, you're going to go. But even more so, you're not just going to do what you see me do, you're going to do greater things. Now, why is that and what is that? Very often people use that to focus only on the miraculous. You know, uh, miracle services, healing services. We're going to do greater things, more people should be healed. Jesus is not alluding to the miracles in that sense, in that passage. Because there's a greater miracle. Those miracles are pictures of the kingdom. I believe God does miracles today. I've seen it. I believe it. But every time where the supernatural breaks into this world, it's a picture. It points people to the life-changing truth of Jesus Christ and the message of the cross, which is the real and greatest miracle of all. Remember, Jesus said of the Jewish people that a wicked generation spends time constantly looking for the signs. There's a point where they get around to the real business of the church, and that's changing lives and changing culture in Jesus' name. When Jesus says, you're going to do greater things than me, it's about the mission. It's about the coming of the kingdom. And why is it that we can do greater things than him? He's God, isn't he? Well, yeah. It's not to say he couldn't have done it all, but his plan was to use us. When Jesus was on planet earth, the Bible says he surrendered his authority as God. So even the miracles that Jesus did, he said he did in the power of the Father. Jesus functioned as a man, even though he was fully divine. So when he says to you, you're going to do greater things than me, this body on planet earth, it's because he saw 2,000 years later, two billion of us filled with the same Holy Spirit, with the same message, doing greater things. It's just simple multiplication, really. Now, I want to throw back up Luke 4, 18 to 19, because we're going to finally on our fifth week, 
take this apart and look at it in terms of a mission statement. I want to be very careful here because this is where all too often we'll take something and turn it into a formula. Five strategies for bringing the kingdom of God, according to Luke chapter four. And then we'll get very legalistic about them. How many of you remember about 12 years ago the prayer of Jabez movement? Anybody remember that? This obscure reference to a man who prayed a very specific prayer and was blessed by God. And that became this magical incantation that if we just pray, God will do that for us. That's a horrible abuse of the Bible. Just because the Bible says something happened, one person did it, that doesn't turn into an imperative or a pattern. And so I want to be very careful when I look at this that I don't act like Jesus was teaching a seminar on on mission statements. But there's a picture here, and there's both a big picture, and then there's a tangible picture of what, if the mission of God is accomplished, what will happen. The first thing we're going to look at is the big picture. There's two statements here that relate to the broad idea of Jesus' mission on earth. The first is the statement, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, aren't the poor the first being listed? Then you have the brokenhearted and the prisoners, the blind. Isn't the poor just among the list? Not really. This statement is really the overarching category. The word poor in Greek there actually means all who are in extreme need. It's not impoverished. It's all people that are destitute in extreme need. It even has with it the idea of an awareness of that need. You know, on the Sermon of the Mount, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that's what this is about. This is about those who have come to terms. The the message of the gospel is not effective, even though it's for everyone, it's not effective for people that are self-confident, people that feel like they don't need it. They do need it, they just don't know it. The message of the gospel can really change people when we get to the point where we understand we are in absolute need of God's intervention in our life, that we are God poor and in desperate need of Him. This message is for everyone. That's the idea here. We are all in extreme need of this good news, this gospel message. And then the end is the summation to pronounce the year of God's favor. The year of God's favor is... uh, as Lou spoke about in our second week, referring to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament where land went back to its original owners, debts were forgiven, prisoners were set free. It was a reboot. It was so extreme to the culture that, in fact, Israel hardly ever practiced it. It was more of an ideal than a reality for Israel. But it was also associated with the ultimate coming of the kingdom when the Messiah would come and establish the era of Jubilee. The phrase, God's favor, is actually the definition of grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. Jesus is saying that His mission 
The gospel message was for all people because we're desperately in need. We're God poor. Our sins have separated us from God. The relationship that was meant to be central in our lives is missing. So we're filling that void with all sorts of other experiences and they're not meeting that desperate need in our lives for God. And the way we're gonna get there is by God's grace. Jesus comes and dies on the cross and pays the price for sin and reconciles us to God. So that's the big picture. But then there is the tangible impact of this coming of God's favor that's supposed to be immediate in some sense. There are four things that he lists. This kingdom would bring comfort for the brokenhearted. The brokenhearted represent all those that are just beat down by life. Wounded, broken people. Life has beat them up. And Jesus said, my kingdom coming will bring comfort to those people that are just beat up and down for the count. The second area is pardon for prisoners people who have made devastatingly bad decisions. Criminals, sinners, who are getting the just desserts of their actions. But because of the grace of God, they can find pardon. The third area is healing for the infirmed, sight to the blind. I am not saying that there's anywhere in Scripture that says everything is to be completely healthy. But I do believe that God cares for us and He heals us according to His will and according to His pleasure. And I believe He does that through all truth that is His truth. I I love the fact that we have so many medical students here. I hope you guys understand that you're miracle workers. Do you understand that, medical students? You're miracle workers. Because what you're learning about the human body and that's in nature, that's, that's God's wiring. You're extending the kingdom, the blessing of God when you bring that healing into people's lives. That's as magical and mystical as when God sidesteps the medical community and heals us in spite of it. And then fourth, justice for the oppressed. Victims of bigotry, they have been pressed down and held down and treated with a different standard and abused. Jesus pictured that this good news of grace and forgiveness that the whole world was intended to receive would not just cure people for eternity. It would impact now. It's about reclaiming this broken world. It's a beautiful picture. Just look at those four first words. What if we began thinking about the mission of the church as both an eternally transforming message, that you can be reconciled to God, You can find God's favor once and for all because Jesus took the sins of the world. But what if part of our mission was about comforting the brokenhearted, visiting prisoners, helping them find a future, finding forgiveness for their past, finding pardon, showing up in people's lives who need to be ministered to physically, care for them, being the instrument of healing? What if we recognize that seeking justice for the oppressed around us was not only a good idea and a compassionate idea, but one of Jesus' original ideas for our mission. What if we captured a whole picture of the gospel 
that is about eternity and the kingdom to come, but also about bringing the kingdom now. What if we began seeing the prayer that our Lord gave us to pray, not just as a cry for the future kingdom, but as a a commission right now. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Right now, in this age, in this place, let this look like your kingdom. That's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just say it, he lived it. He said that there would be healing for the brokenhearted. And and who was he? He was the Prince of Peace. Picture him with disciples in a storm that was overwhelming them and about to take them under. Speaking to the storm, peace, be still. Hear him in John 14 saying to his followers, peace I give to you, not as the world gives peace. Let not your heart be troubled. Listen to the impact of that on the first century church when the, when the Apostle Paul could say that even in the hardest of circumstances, even when my heart is completely broken, God brings a peace that's beyond comprehension. The peace I can't explain because circumstances should be overwhelmingly. Jesus brought peace, healing to the brokenhearted. Pardon for prisoners. Picture Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, saying, I came not to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Picture him taking away our sins on the cross. Picture him with a lame man who had been dropped through a roof in a home that was too crowded to find the front door by four friends, and when he saw the faith of those four friends, he said to the lame man, your sins are forgiven you. And to the woman, a few chapters later, the the harlot who came to him weeping, and Jesus saying to her, your sins are forgiven, and the religious leader saying, who is this man that he even forgives sins? He was the one who was anointed by God to bring pardon for the prisoner. Sight to the blind. Picture Jesus as the great physician. (laughs) See him with the blind. And the leper. All people in the kingdom of Israel who had infirmities were considered to be objects of God's wrath and judgment. In other words, they all in the mind of the culture were getting what they deserved. Lepers were forced to live away and they had to wear a particular type of clothing so that people saw them from a distance and knew they were a leper. They had to shout ahead of them as they entered into civilized areas. Unclean, unclean. Announcing their illness, their brokenness, and their isolation. Picture that leper calling out to Jesus, persisting, And Jesus saying, what do you want? Him saying, if you want to, you can heal me. And what does the great physician say back to him? I want to. I am willing. See, Jesus lived his mission. Liberty for the oppressed. 
Picture Jesus as the King of kings, bringing about justice, treating women with the dignity that the race had forgotten, elevating them, including in his party tax collectors, reaching out to Samaritans, to Samaritan women. So startled was the Samaritan woman who was an outcast of her own people because of her years of adultery, coming to that well in the mid of the day because she wouldn't come when the other women of the village came. She was an outcast to Samaritans who were an outcast to the world. And Jesus reached out to her, elevated her, and gave her living water. See my point? If you look at how Jesus lived his life, it shouldn't surprise you. He told everybody what he was going to do right here. And then he turns and says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So, next week I'm going to paint a picture of what it might look like for us to fulfill Jesus' mission in this city and in this world. But before we do that, I just want to get you thinking a little bit about what that might look like. And that's that last section, making Jesus' mission our mission. And that section is there for you to spend some time this week thinking through what it would look like if you were fulfilling the mission of Jesus everywhere you are. If in your work you were bringing comfort and pardon and healing and justice and in your neighborhoods and in your relationships at home. What if you saw yourself everywhere you are as Jesus' hands and feet fulfilling and extending his mission here on earth. You see, most of us get really intimidated at the thought of the Great Commission because we make it all about being able to make a really good sales pitch for salvation. I can't witness because I'm not good with words. I don't know how to debate all those different things. Well, maybe it was never meant to be about a debate. Maybe the message of Jesus was meant to come to people who accepted it as true because they'd experienced it. They'd watched Christians bring comfort and pardon and healing and justice. They saw Jesus. And then when we talked about how they can know them, they said, yeah, I want that. I think that's what we're getting at in Jesus' words about seeking the kingdom first. Go ahead and throw that last slide up. Seek first the reign of God and live righteously. Our traditional translation of that is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is about the reign of God. What if we were personally seeking the reign of God in our lives and then living rightly in the world around us? What might that look like? Right there, that's what it would look like. Comfort, pardon, healing, justice. What if Worcester, when they thought about us, thought about those things? Instead of our view on marriage or abortion. What if when they looked at us, they saw that? Father, as Jesus came and brought redemption through his death, but also brought blessing through his life. May we as your people here recapture that gospel, that mission. Help it to inspire us and excite us 
about the difference we can make. Father, we want to claim the higher ground for your kingdom. And we're asking you to show us how to be the people of Jesus, continuing and extending the mission of God on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.